Since tonight's topic is a little bit of a, a heavy one, I thought maybe it would be good to start with a prayer from St. Thomas More with a slightly more lighthearted tone. So we'll pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant me, O Lord, good digestion and also something to digest. Grant me a healthy body and the necessary good humor to maintain it. Grant me a simple soul that knows to treasure all that is good and that does not frighten easily at the sight of evil, but rather finds the means to put things back in their place. Give me a soul that knows not boredom, grumbling, sighs, and laments, nor excesses of stress because of that obstructing thing called I. Grant me, O Lord, a good sense of humor. Allow me the grace to be able to take a joke, to discover in life a bit of joy, and to be able to share it with others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, it's a kind of a strange title, I suppose, uh, Lenten Letters from Prison. I, I kind of got the idea um, from a, I was on, I did a, uh, a seminar a couple years ago in Poland, and uh, one of the presentations was called uh, Benedict's September Letters. And it, it turns out that Pope Benedict, if you look at, uh, if you look at his pontificate, you find that uh, on four separate occasions he delivered an address uh, during the month of September that touched upon the political order. You know, this was a conference on Catholic social teaching. And so like, okay, it's kind of an interesting thing to bring together these things that are seemingly unrelated, but nevertheless, there's a common theme. And so I thought what we would do tonight is we would just go through three letters uh, from three different people uh, that touch upon the theme of uh, suffering and how they uh, made their way through it. Um, the common thread not only being suffering, but that these letters were written from, uh, from prison. And uh, I'll explain one of them is a little bit of a stretch. But uh, the first uh, talk about is a letter that uh, St. Thomas More wrote to his daughter Margaret. The second is, and perhaps maybe a little bit controversial, uh, I'd like to look at a letter from uh, Oscar Wilde, not a saint, but um, a, a letter called De Profundis, which he wrote from prison. And then this is a little bit of a stretch, but um, John Paul II has a very moving meditation on suffering entitled Salvifici Doloris. And when, uh, when we, uh, we studied this in the seminary, a professor had told us that he wrote it, or at least he, he, he formulated a lot of the ideas for it um, while he was recovering from his assassination attempt. Uh, the, the letter was published in 1984. He was, the assassination attempt was about three years prior to that. But um, clearly also a man associated with suffering. And while hospitals in prison, it, doesn't, it does uh, bear certain resemblances, right? You know, a certain limitation of freedom and movement and so forth. And so I thought that would be the common thread uh, linking them all together. Uh, on, a, on a lighthearted note, one of the things I'd like to show you, I'm wearing, uh, I'm wearing these, uh, these red cufflinks. We oftentimes think of red as being the color of martyrdom and suffering. And these are made out of official government red tape. Civil War era documents, uh, which for many of us here in Washington is our primary source of, uh, of suffering and martyrdom. Uh, you can buy a pair of these at the uh, National Archives if you want a pair. Um, <laughs> again, it's good to start with something lighthearted as we dive into this topic. But, you know, I'd like to suggest that this topic isn't as dark as we might imagine. Uh, there is, in fact, great light and great joy uh, in the midst even of uh, the difficult situations of life. So let's, uh, let's look at some of these, uh, not just speculations, but, but concrete experiences of God's grace in the midst of uh, challenging situations. Tom, um, it's very interesting. If you type in Thomas More and Lent, 98% uh, of what you get on uh, the, Google, uh, the Google search is uh, um, invitations to fish fries at various Thomas More churches uh, around the country. Uh, but one of the things that you find is um, uh, uh, Lenten meditations uh, on EWTN, and they have uh, excerpts taken from different uh, authors. And uh, one of them is uh, an excerpt from a letter that Thomas More wrote to uh, his daughter Margaret. And amazingly enough, uh, these were published like four or five years ago on EWTN's website. I just looked at it today, and I realized that the, the Thomas More reflection was for Monday, the third week of Lent which it happens to be today. So it's a, a kind of a, an ironic twist. Um, Thomas More 
says a number of very interesting things to his daughter in this letter, which is really of a great spiritual nature. I have a, a number of his letters um, here, and most of them really deal with kind of biographical facts, um, you know, what was said, who it was said to, uh, you know, the arguments back and forth about the, uh, the questions of conscience. But this is a letter that he wrote to his daughter that really deals with his, uh, his spiritual experience of prison. How did he make sense of it? And he begins by uh, speaking of uh, God, and he says, His grace has strengthened me until now and made me constant, content to lose goods, land, and life as well, rather than to swear against my conscience. I think that's a really good starting point, right? You know, one of the things that enables us to um, endure the trials of life is to be with other people, right? One of the greatest trials is probably the trial of loneliness. And uh, the greatest form of loneliness, I think, is, is probably alienation from our Lord. And so uh, the first piece of bearing suffering joyfully and patiently is to have a good conscience, to be at peace with oneself, to be at peace with one's God. Now, having a good conscience obviously means avoiding sin. It obviously means, um, you know, making use of the great sacrament of confession. But it also means um, learning to uh, have patience with ourselves, uh, recognizing that the, the heroic struggle for virtue is a lifelong struggle, and uh, and that the saint is not the one who never falls down, but it's the one who keeps getting up over and over again. And so. Part of uh, being content with oneself is uh, learning to have kind of the long-term vision. I mean, it doesn't mean that we should disregard sin, but it means that we should also uh, exercise a modicum of patience uh, when, of course, we do fall and we do fail. He goes on to say, and again, this is a theme that, that seems to be uh, pervasive in many of uh, the great writers about suffering. He says, uh, in doing this, uh, that is sending him to prison, his majesty, the king that is, uh, has done me such great good with respect to spiritual profit that I trust that among all the great benefits he has heaped so abundantly upon me, I count my imprisonment the very greatest. I cannot therefore mistrust the grace of God. Um, this theme of providence, this theme of a kind of a pervasive awareness of God's providential care and providential love is another thing that, that seems to undergird so many of uh, those who experience joy in the face of suffering, right? Um, the experience of God's providence is, uh, you could say, a quasi-experimental um, experimental, uh contact with God, right? You know, the, the, the awareness of God's providence is born first and foremost by, by honestly examining our lives, by honestly looking at our trials, by honestly looking at the ways that the Lord has pulled us through those trials and recognizing the, the conversion of soul that happens in the midst of them. It's by experiment, right? You know, I go through this, I persevere through this, I recognize some spiritual good that has occurred or some greater, you know, perhaps human healing that's occurred. Ah, God's providence at work in the midst of that suffering. And so um, the trust in God's providence is another kind of perennial theme in those who, uh, who experience joy in the face of trials. Um, he then goes on to say, and this is something that will kind of shock the modern ear a little bit, but, um, but even, even here there's something, something worthwhile. He says, by the merits of his bitter passion joined to mine, that's Christ's bitter passion, uh, and far surpassing in merit for me all that I can suffer myself, his boundless goodness shall release me from the pains of purgatory, and I shall increase my reward in heavens besides. Right, so he's connecting uh, suffering with purgatory. And, uh, and I think here there's a, there's a need to avoid a kind of a raw mechanical equation. You know, those of the, you know, or the mathematical types or maybe the, the lawyer types. Uh, it's very easy to just sort of say, okay, sin equals debt, debt equals punishment, uh, uh, purgatory is the way that we pay for that, that, that punishment. And, uh, and, and so, you know, if I can suffer enough here, I get enough kind of suffering points and then I get out of purgatory, right? You know, it's a very, it's a, it's a kind of a mechanical uh, way of thinking about it. Uh, a number of years ago, Pope Benedict wrote something on purgatory, which I, I, I copied down and thought was just really uh, a wonderful, a wonderful explanation. He said, 
there will be few people whose lives are pure and fulfilled in all respects, and we would hope that there will be few people whose lives have become an irredeemable and total no. For the most part, the longing for good has remained, despite many breakdowns, in some sense, determinative. God can pick up the broken pieces and make something of them. In any case, we find a final cleansing. We need a final cleansing, a cleansing by fire, to be exact, in which the gaze of Christ, so to say, burns us free from everything. And only under his purifying gaze are we, as it were, fit to be with God and able then to make our home with him. I think it is something very human. I would go so far as to say that if there were no purgatory, then we would have to invent it. For who would dare say of himself or herself uh, that he was able to stand directly before God? And yet we do not want to be, to use an image from Scripture, a pot that turned out wrong, that has to be thrown away. We want to be able to be put back right. Purgatory basically means that God can put the pieces back together again, that he can cleanse us in such a way that we are able to be with him and stand there in the fullness of life. Purgatory strips off from one person what is unbearable and from another the inability to bear certain things, so that in each of them a pure heart is revealed, and we can see that we all belong together in one enormous symphony of being. That, uh, that came originally from an uh, uh, interview that he did called God in the World. It was an interview, I think it was Peter Siebold uh, and Ignatius Press published it in 2002 for all the scholars out there who want scholarly references. Um, you know, but it is a constant Catholic doctrine, right, that our sufferings and our experiences of trial and so forth in this life can actually uh, have that purifying and that purgative effect even here, you know. And so uh, to be able to enter into suffering with a, with a sense of hope and with a sense that it has a transformative quality also um, uh, is a key, I think, to, uh, to, to our endurance of it. And finally, he, um, he, he mentions that he, he constantly invokes Christ. He constantly invokes Christ in his prayer and really asks for, for his help in bearing, uh, bearing the sufferings. You know, I mean, again, one of the great challenges for us is to not try to bear it alone. And so that kind of gives a jumping off point for, uh, you know, this is Thomas More's uh, kind of spirituality that, that emerges within prison, how he finds joy in the face of trial. Now, in a very different world, we find uh, Oscar Wilde. You know, Thomas More, Thomas More is a canonized saint. Thomas More was in prison uh, by choosing his con- to, to respect his conscience rather than to comply with secular law. Um, Oscar Wilde is in a very different uh, space when he enters uh, prison. Uh, Wilde was, uh, was, was basically an esthete, a, uh, a, a fop, a dandy, a, a hedonist, perhaps. Um, in fact, even in his letter, he talks about his experience of pleasure throughout life. He was an exceptionally complicated guy. You know, it's not entirely clear what his religious views were throughout his life, but he seems to have, uh, he seems to have died a Catholic. Um, he was actually baptized three times. Uh, he was baptized an Anglican, uh, a Church of England, around his birth. About five years later, his mother became friends with a Catholic priest who, uh, by the priest account, baptized him in the Catholic Church in the, the, uh, around, um, I guess it was about 1859. And then on his deathbed, uh, the day before he died, uh, November 29th, uh, 1900, he was conditionally baptized by a Passionist priest um, because of the uncertainty uh, um, of you know what, what his actual status was, but the the final years of his life were were definitely marked by a, a Christian tone. He was in jail uh, because of a um, to put it delicately uh, an inappropriate relationship that he had with a young nobleman. Um, uh, they uh, began a kind of an intimate relationship uh, around 1891, and by 1895, the uh, the young man with whom uh, Wilde was. Uh, um, close friends. Uh, uh, his family wasn't real thrilled about the relationship, and at that point in time, such uh, such relationships were illegal. And so he went to trial in 1895, and then uh, went to prison for two years. Um, and there's a letter that he wrote uh, while in prison. It, it, it takes a very interesting tone. It's the tone both of an artist and also the tone of a man 
undergoing a conversion as he writes. Right? So this is not the sort of uh, the Mother Teresa type letter. This is a man who had led a, a complicated life and was beginning to try to make sense of it. And um, it's called De Profundis, which comes from Psalm 130. Uh, De Profundis clamavit a te domine. Uh, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. It's a meditation on suffering. And uh, we find so much rich that it's, it's really worth reading. Um, one of the things that's interesting, he starts off by, by just sort of acknowledging, this is a 50,000 word open letter to the man with, which, uh, with whom he had been uh, uh, close friends. And, um, and uh, it was later published after his death. Redacted, heavily redacted, and this is the redacted version. You can actually find a copy of it with all the gory details and biographical information. Uh, it was published in 1962. But um, he starts off by acknowledging, uh, in a sense, um, a certain repentance for being there, right? He mentions, uh, you know, his family's noble name. They're part of the intellectual set. And he says, I had disgraced that name eternally. I had made it lo- a low byword among low people. I had dragged it through the very mire. I had given it to brutes that they might make it brutal and to fools that they might turn it into a synonym for folly. You know, he kind of, he, he, he acknowledges what he did. He accepts that in a certain sense, uh, at least according to the social standards of the time, that he deserves to be there. Um, and that's a theme that carries throughout the letter, the lack of bitterness, the acceptance of his situation. Um, it seems that, you know, not fighting against the parts of reality that we can't change uh, seems to be a, a very key part of finding joy in trial. Then he begins this great aesthetic dissection of suffering. He says, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Someday people will realize what they mean, what that means. They will know nothing of life until they do. Sorrow opens up a pathway in the soul that enables one to encounter God. He says, he says, the poor are wise. They're more charitable. They're more kind. They're more sensitive than we are. In their eyes, prison is a tragedy in a man's life, a misfortune, a casualty, something that calls for sympathy in others. They speak of one who is in prison as one who is in trouble, simply. With people of our own rank, it is different. With us, prison makes a man a pariah. I, and such as I am, have hardly any right to air and sun. Our presence taints the pleasure of others. We're an unwelcome when we appear. What an interesting uh, insight that is, right? You know, those who have experienced suffering in life, the poor, um, it develops within them a compassion, a sympathy, right? Um, he goes on to, uh, to begin the great search for meaning, the great search for meaning in the face of trials and sufferings. Um, he, uh, he mentions... Um, the words of, uh, of Wordsworth. He says, suffering is permanent, obscure, and dark. It has the nature of infinity. He then says, but while there were times when I rejoiced in the idea that my sufferings were to be endless. Well, what a weird way to say it. I rejoiced in the idea that my sufferings were to be endless. I could not bear them to be without meaning. Now I find hidden somewhere away in my nature something that tells me that nothing in the whole world is meaningless. Suffering least of all. That suffering hidden away in my nature, like a treasure in a field, is humility. <laughs> what an amazing thing. He has the humility to acknowledge that the suffering is, is, is causing from his soul to emerge this humility. A man filled with pomp, a man filled with pride, professional success, is allowing uh, the Lord to break him down. He said, referring to humility, it is the last thing left in me and the best. It is the one thing that has in it the elements of life, of a new life, a vita nuova for me. Of all the things, it is the strangest. One cannot acquire it except by surrendering everything one has. It is only when one has lost all things that one knows that one possesses it. Ah, there's a conversion beginning in the soul. There's a, there's a change. He goes on to say, he says, I'm completely penniless and absolutely homeless, yet there are worse things in this world than that. I'm quite candid when I say that, that I would rather, uh, rather than go out from this prison with bitterness in my heart against the world, I would grad- gladly and readily beg my bread from door to door. And I, if I got nothing from the house of the rich, 
I would get something from the house of the poor. Those who have much are often greedy. Those who have little always share. Again, this sort of insight of the compassion that, that suffering brings about. And again, this key that the sort of the lack of resentment, the lack of bitterness in the soul. Um, I mean, he certainly was, th- this letter was written like the last four months of his prison stay. This was not a kind of an instantaneous thing, right? This was something that, that took time to emerge. Uh, passing through the crucible of suffering allowed him to see the futility of being angry over it, right? And so when we, when we experience the sufferings, uh, one of the things we have to do is we have to kind of begin at uh, the first sign of it to begin to kind of purge the bitterness from our souls. You know, we have to develop that acute sensitivity of, of conscience, that acute sensitivity of soul to recognize when uh, that bitterness, that resentment is creeping in and begin to, uh, to flush it out. And then he goes on to begin at the hint of the answer. He says, I, then I must learn how to be happy. He says, uh, Dante places low in the inferno those who, are willf- who willfully live in sadness. Um, and he quotes from Dante's Inferno, Tristi fumo che aer dolce che dal sol s'allegra. It's written in the Florentine dialect of the, uh, the 13th century. It means, we were sullen in the sweet air which rejoiced in the sunlight. He said, I knew the church condemned uh, acedia, but the whole idea seemed to me quite fantastic. Just the sort of sin I fancied a priest who knew nothing about real life would invent. No, nor could I understand how Dante, who says that sorrow remarries us to God, could have been so harsh to those who were enamored of melancholy, if any such were, uh, there really were. I had no idea that someday this would become, to me, one of the greatest temptations of my life. And then he provides the answer. While I was in Wandsworth prison, I longed to die. It was my one desire. Then after two months in the infirmary, I was transferred here and found myself growing gradually better in physical health. I was filled with rage. I determined to commit suicide on the very day on which I left prison. After a time, that evil mood passed away, and I made up my mind to live. But to wear gloom as a king wears purple, never to smile again, to turn whatever house I entered into a house of mourning, to make my friends walk slowly in sadness with me to teach them that melancholy is the true secret of life, to maintain them with an alien sorrow, to mar them with my own pain. Now I feel quite differently. I see it would be both ungrateful and unkind of me to pull so long a face that when my friends came to see me, they would have to make their faces still longer in order to show their sympathy. Or if I desired to entertain them, to invite them to sit down silently to bitter herbs and funeral baked meats, I must learn how to be cheerful and happy. So the conversion continues. It continues. Um, he goes on to recognize, and I'll skip over some of this. He goes on to recognize that, um, that he had spent his entire life shielding himself from suffering. He had a, an interesting insight. He said, he said um, I remember when I was at Oxford saying to one of my friends as we were strolling around Magdalene's narrow bird-haunted walks one morning in the year before I took my degree, that I wanted to eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden of the world, and that I was going out into the world with that passion in my soul. And so indeed I went out, and so I lived. My only mistake was that I confined myself to exclusively to those trees of what seemed to me the sunlit side of the garden and shunned the other side for its shadows and its gloom. Failure, disgrace, poverty, sorrow, despair, suffering, tears even, the broken words that came from lips in pain, remorse that makes one walk on thorns, conscience that condemns, self-abasement that punishes, the mercy that puts ashes on its head, the anguish that chooses sackcloth for its raiment and into its own drink puts gall. All these were things of which I was afraid. And as I had determined to know nothing of them, I was forced to taste each of them in turn, to feed on them, to have for a season, indeed, no other food at all. But this is when the letter takes a dramatic turn, far from simply recounting the, the, his autobiography and his, uh, his, his pain. He begins to uh, find the path. Um, again, he's an artist, and so he's approaching the whole Christian story from the view of the artist. And so he begins this extended meditation on 
Christ as an artist. It's, it's an interesting one, right? You know, we oftentimes think of Christ as being related to uh, the transcendentals of goodness and truth, but we don't oftentimes think about beauty within uh, the person of Christ. But that's where Wilde goes. Um, he says, the very basis of his nature, that is Christ's, was the same as that of the nature of the artist, an intense and flame-like imagination. He realizes in the entire sphere of human relations that imaginative symphony, which in the sphere of art is the sole secret of creation. He understood the leprosy of the leper, the darkness of the blind, the fierce misery of those who live for pleasure, the strange poverty of the rich. Say that again, the leprosy of the leper, the darkness of the blind. But then the paradox emerges, right? The fierce misery of those who live for pleasure, the strange poverty of the rich. Christ entered into the full drama of the human experience. He goes on to say, Christ's place indeed is with the poets more than anyone else in history. He wakes in us that temper of wonder to which romance always appeals. There is still something to me almost incredible in the idea of a young Galilean peasant imagining that he could bear on his own shoulders the burden of the entire world. All that had already been done and suffered and all that was yet to be done and suffered. The sins of Nero, of Caesar Borgia, of Alexander the, the Sixth, and of him who was emperor of Rome and priest of the sun. The sufferings of those whose names are legion, whose dwelling is among the tombs, oppressed nationalities, factory children, thieves, people in prison, outcasts, those who are dumb under oppression and whose silence is heard only of God. And not merely imagining this, but actually achieving it so that at the present moment, all who come into contact with his personality, even though they may neither bow to his altar nor kneel before his priest, in some way find that the ugliness of their sin is taken away and the beauty of their sorrow revealed to them. What an amazing thing for somebody who had not been brought up consciously in the Christian faith to, uh, to identify, right? The compellingness of Christ's personality. Uh, Christ shows how wrong Aristotle was when he said in his treaty on the drama that it would be impossible to bear the spectacle of one blameless in pain. Is there anything for that, that for sheer simplicity of pathos, wedded and made one with sublimity of tragic effect, can be said to equal or even approach the last act of Christ's passion? the little supper with his companions, one of whom had already sold him for a price, the anguish in the quiet moonlit garden, the false friend coming close to him so as to betray him with a kiss, the friend who still believed in him and on whom, as on a rock, he had hoped to build a house of refuge for man, denying him as the bird cried to the dawn, his own utter loneliness, his submission, his acceptance of everything, and along with it, all such scenes as the high priest of orthodoxy rending his raiment in wrath and the magistrate of civil justice calling for water in the vain hope of cleansing himself of that stain of innocent blood that makes him the scarlet figure of history. The coronation ceremony of sorrow, one of the most wonderful things in the whole of recorded time, the crucifixion of the innocent one before the eyes of his mother and of the disciple before whom he loved, the soldiers gambling and throwing dice for his clothes, the terrible death by which he gave the world its most eternal symbol, and his final burial in the tomb of the rich man, his body swathed in Egyptian linen with costly spices and perfume as though he had been a king's son. What a marvelous, what a marvelous uh, explanation and, and exposition of the passion. Christ identifying with the totality of the human experience, even the darkest moments, but even there, Wilde able to find a beauty in uh, that, supreme, uh, that supreme unity between Christ, uh, between God and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. He says somewhere that Christ's greatest achievement was that he made himself as much loved after his death as he had been during his whole lifetime. He saw that love was the first secret of the world for which the wise men had been looking that it was only through love that one could approach either the heart of the leper or the feet of God. 
In talking about our souls, Christ compares it to little things, to a tiny seed, to a handful of leaven, to a pearl. This is because one realizes one's soul only by getting rid of all alien passions, all acquired culture, and all external possessions, be they good or evil. Wilde then goes on to relate his loss of nearly everything in his life, and not only his wealth, not only his uh, reputation, but even his relationship with his uh, wife and children. He said they were all taken from him. That moment, he says, it was a blow so appalling that I did not know what to do. So I flung myself on my knees and bowed my head and wept. He said the body of a child is as of the body of the Lord. I am worthy of, I am not worthy of either. That moment seemed to save me. I saw then that the only thing for me was to accept everything. Since then, curious as curious as it will do no doubt sound, I've been happier. Let me say that again. I realized that for me, at that moment that the only thing was for me to accept everything. Since then, curious as it will no doubt sound, I have been happier. It was of course it was of course my soul in its ultimate essence that I had reached. In many ways I had been its enemy, but I found it waiting for me as a friend. When one comes into contact with the soul, it makes one simple as a child, as Christ said one should be. It is tragic how few people ever possess their souls before they die. Nothing is more rare in any man, says Emerson, than an act of his own. It is quite true. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their lives a mimicry, their passions a quotation. Christ was not merely the supreme individualist, but he was the first individualist in history. What an amazing transformative effect Wilde's uh, time in prison had. Discovering the beauty even in the sorrowful aspects of life. Uh, recognizing the great healing work that Christ was doing in his soul by stripping him of things that uh, seemed to be good. Things that were, in fact, good, but seemed to him to be the ultimate good. This, of course, was how he made, uh, was how he made it through. Uh, realizing the importance of not being bitter, realizing the importance of struggling to find meaning and to find joy and to find beauty and to find happiness, even in the most difficult aspects. And that is how uh, the Lord can work in the heart of one who, who's open, right? I mean, again, this was a man who wasn't a saint going into prison, but who, who discovered sanctity in the course of that experience. Finally, I want to turn to um, John Paul II's uh, great letter, Salvifici Doloris. Anyone who has ever uh, gone through a difficult moment um, and not known what to do, I would suggest this letter as something worthy of, uh, of meditation. Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll skip, we'll kind of dance through it quickly because um, I don't want to go on too long. But uh, John Paul, of course, was a man deeply acquainted with uh, trials in life, right? You know? But I think we can also say John Paul was a deeply joyful man. Right? I mean, it was a man who was always smiling. He always seemed to have a, almost a mischievous smile on his face. And yet he had passed through the horrors of uh, the World War. He had gone through um, communist occupation, uh, betrayal by close, uh, close collaborators. And then um, not one, but actually two assassination attempts. Um, one in 1981, another one in 1982, where somebody attempted to stab him. The 1981 uh, assassination attempt, he actually was uh, shot and it perforated his colon and he lost, uh, I believe it was uh, three, three pints of blood. Um, spent quite a while uh, recovering. And yet, nevertheless, he opens up this letter with a very bold statement. He says, declaring the power of salvific suffering, the Apostle Paul says, in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. He then says, the joy that comes from the discovery of the meaning of suffering, and this discovery, even if it is most personally shared in by Paul of Tarsus, who wrote these words, is at the same time valid for others. The apostle shares his own discovery and rejoices in it because of all those whom it can help, just as it helped him to understand the salvific meaning of suffering. 
when we when we discover the inner meaning of that which seems most frightening in our lives, uh, all of a sudden uh, joy begins to emerge. But it's a supernatural joy, right? It's not the joy that it's not a kind of a human happiness that comes from the absence of external conflict. It's a it's an inner joy that wells up from uh, being at peace with oneself, being at peace with one's God. Um, and so he dives into uh, a very deep meditation on suffering. It's not so much a, a theological treatise, although he does get into that, but it is um, a meditation, something to be chewed on, something to be savored. Um, as he begins, he, he says that um, there's something about suffering that seems particularly essential to the nature of man. It is as deep as man himself precisely because it manifests in its own way that depth that depth, that profundity, right? That profunditas uh, that we, you know, we, that we, the, 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 the depths, de profundis, the depths of the human soul. It, um, suffering seems to belong to man's transcendence. It is, at one, it is one of those points in which man is, in a certain sense, destined to go beyond himself, and he is called to this in a mysterious way. And so the sort of the mysterious dimension of suffering is, is the place where he starts, right? Mystery is one of those words that we use um, oftentimes in very imprecise ways, right? You know, a lot of people use it, a lot of Catholics kind of mistakenly use it as a, a sort of an intellectual cop-out, right? You know, what's the answer to this question? Oh, I don't know. It's a mystery, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, mystery has a very precise meaning, right? Mystery means it's something that is partially known but partially hidden, right? You know, and suffering, like the Mass, like the Trinity, like the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, all of these things are things that we can say, we can make definitive true statements about, and yet we can't make the ultimate definitive true statement that captures its essence, right? That's what he means by mystery, and that's what we mean by suffering, right? We can begin to sketch answers, but much of it remains hidden. Much of it remains a kind of a, a, a darkness before which, like wild, we have to simply bow and, uh, and, and hand over um, our whole lives, including our intellect, including our desire for a rational explanation. We have to hand it over to God, right? And that's one of the things that suffering elicits. Um, he goes on to link uh, suffering with the cross and with redemption. He says, because the de- redemption is accomplished through the cross of Christ, that it is through his suffering. And so uh, when we speak of suffering, we have to always remember that there's a transformative dimension to it. There, there is a redemption. We're being changed. We're being, in a sense, converted into that image of, of human perfection that was intended uh, from the very moment of creation, right? The, the pre-lapsarian state, Adam and Eve. Um, John Paul actually recognizes something that's very interesting. Uh, it's parallel to what Wilde said, right? He said, human suffering evokes compassion. It also evokes respect. And its own way, it intimidates. Isn't it funny? That's like almost the exact same progression that, that Wilde recognized. He first spoke of the, uh, the compassion that emanates from those who suffer from the poor. He then uh, paints this picture of respect for Christ, the artist, who uh, became a, a kind of a, a beautiful, tragic poet in, in the face of his, his uh, joyful acceptance of his mission. Um, but he also, uh, he also um, recognized that suffering intimidates. And uh, many people, because of their fear of it, uh, shy away from those who are in pain, which, of course, uh, you know, emphasizes us the, the fact that compassion, to suffer with, compassio, uh, to suffer with is it really at the heart of um, the Christian um, approach to easing the sufferings of others. Simply not turning away our faces um, goes, uh, goes a long way in easing, in easing the suffering of others. Um, he goes on to recognize that uh, one, uh, I mean, obviously suffering is identified with physical pain, um, and uh, but it's also identified with moral pain, with existential pain. He, he recognizes that uh, suffering is not one of those things from which religion or the scriptures has ever shied away from. This is an important thing, right? Because oftentimes, 
people use suffering precisely as um, an example of the lack of existence of God, right? The non-existence of God. But sacred scripture faces this question quite honestly. He says, sacred scripture is a great book about suffering. Let us quote from the books of the Old Testament, a few examples of situations which bear the signs of suffering, and above all, moral suffering, the danger of death, the death of one's own children, and especially the death of the firstborn, the only son. And then, too, the lack of offspring, nostalgia for the homeland, persecution and hostility to the environment, mockery and scorn of the one who suffers, loneliness and abandonment, and again, the remorse of conscience, the difficulty of understanding why the wicked prosper and the just suffer, the unfaithfulness and ingratitude of friends and neighbors, and finally, the misfortune of one's own nation. He cites all these things because at times, you know, religious believers are, are kind of... Uh, thought of as being naive, of just saying, oh, you know, you, you know, the only reason you can sort of say, you know, God loves you and God will take care of things is because you, you really don't know the depths of uh, what can go wrong, right? It's easy for you to say that, or it's easy for, you know, the Bible thumper to say that, but, you know, what does the religious person really know? Well, I mean, the Bible does not shy away. The scriptures do not shy away from the fundamental problem of the difficulty of, of the existence of suffering and evil. Um, he then goes on, you know, in a very kind of philosophical manner to, uh, to say, you know, the reality of suffering prompts the question about what is the essence of evil, right? Um, Christianity proclaims the essential good of existence and the good of that which exists. It acknowledges the goodness of the Creator and proclaims the, uh, the good of creatures. Man suffers on account of evil, which is a certain lack, limitation, or distortion of good. That's a really good definition, isn't it? Evil is the lack, the limitation, or the distortion of good. We could say that man suffers because of a good in which he does not share. What an interesting argument that is, right? You know, the simple repugnance of the existence of evil points to... Uh, the goodness of God, right? We have to have an objective reference point against which we can measure evil if we are to rebel against it, right? You know, if there is no God, if there is no goodness, if there is no objective standard of the good, how can we rebel in such an existential fashion against evil, right? Uh, we could say that man suffers because of a good in which he does not share, which from a certain sense he is cut off or of which he has deprived himself. He particularly suffer suffers when he uh, ought, in the normal order of things, to have a share of this good and does not have it. Right? So then he dives right into the question. He said, it is obvious that pain, especially physical pain, is widespread in the animal world, but only the suffering of human beings, uh, the, the suffering human being knows that he is suffering and wonders why. And, his, and he suffers, in a humanly speaking, still deeper way if he does not find a satisfactory answer. Right? Isn't, that, isn't that interesting, right? You know, perhaps one of the most difficult things is not knowing, right? Um, and so often people say, oh, I could, I could bear it if I knew why it was happening, right? Um, why does evil exist? This is a difficult question, just as is the question closely akin to it. Why does evil exist? Why is there evil in the world? When we put the question in this way, we're always, at least to a certain extent, asking a question about suffering too. Both questions are difficult. When an individual puts them to another individual, when people put them to other people, and also when man puts them to God. You know, one of the challenges that we, we I, I, I face this constantly, right? You know, um, people struggle with this question so much. Okay, I can understand my suffering, or I can understand this or that, but you know, why is it innocent people have to have this happen to them? Well, the reality is we can barely understand our own suffering. We can never, at least from external observation, really understand the suffering of another. At best, uh, through their invitation, we can enter into that experience and begin to make sense of it. But we can barely understand our own. And so why would we have the hubris to think that, you know, that the answer to you know, the, the anonymous stranger uh, out there you know, is going to just radically emerge, right? But nevertheless, we want an answer, right? And he says both questions are difficult, um, but God wants us to put the question to them, to him. 
He said, it's well known that concerning this question, there not only arises many frustrations and conflicts in the relation with man and God, but it also happens that people reach the point of actually denying God, right? For whereas the existence of the world opens, as it were, the eyes of the human soul to the existence of God, to his wisdom, power, and greatness, evil, and suffering, seem to obscure this image, sometimes in a radical way, especially in the daily drama of so many cases of undeserved suffering and of so many faults without proper punishment. Benedict, again, actually uses this as an argument for the existence of God, right? If there is no God, then we have no basis for arguing that there is such thing as undeserved suffering or, or for getting upset that uh, the guilty are not punished, right? If there is no God, if there is no objective, a metaphysical objective for, uh, standard for justice, um, then we really can't rebel against injustice, lack of fairness, right? So then the Pope, number 10, begins to dive into the answer to the question. And this is where the encyclical, this is where the letter gets really interesting. And uh, I could, we could probably spend hours just on this, but we're going to glance through it in like six minutes. Um, there's four answers. Classically, there are four answers. And he uses Job. He, looks, he uses the book of Job as the kind of the jumping off point. There are four answers to the question of suffering. And they're really not answers, but they're more progressions of development uh, in the development of an answer. So uh, Job is the perfectly innocent man. We know the story, right? He loses his possessions, his sons, his daughters, and finally he himself is afflicted by a grave sickness. However, he must, uh, his friends have argued, because they're searching for an answer, he must have done something wrong. For suffering, they say, always strikes a man as punishment for crime, right? And this is the first answer. Uh, you are suffering because you did something wrong, and this is, you know, that's what happens. You know, when you do something bad, you have to, you have to experience pain. You have to experience suffering, right? And this is uh, probably the simplest answer, but also the most incomplete answer, right? Because uh, even, um, even uh, as the Pope points out a little bit later, in the end, God himself reproves Job's friend for their accusation, recognizes that Job is not guilty, right? I mean, a priori, uh, you know, um, from the beginning of the story, uh, Job is not guilty, right? And that, so that can't be the answer, right? And, uh, and so often um, we see that innocent people, they really have done nothing to deserve it, and yet they suffer, right? And uh, we see how acute this desire is for a meaning when we see uh, the innocent actually begin to blame themselves, right? You know, I mean, I'm sure that you've heard the stories of people who have suffered some form of abuse, you know, particularly children who begin, you know, it, it is more deplorable f to have suffering without a meaning than, uh, than to, to, to improperly blame oneself. And so, so people blame themselves, right? But the reality is that's not always the answer. Um, his suffering, the Pope says, his suffering is the suffering of someone who is innocent, and it must be accepted as a mystery, which the individual is unable to penetrate completely by his own intelligence. This is that um, the second piece, right? I am God, and you are not, and there are certain things in the way that I operate that you will not understand. Until, uh, until heaven, right? You know, you take the example of a child, uh, and it, you imagine a small child, uh, three, four, five, six years old. You know, they're kind of aware of their surroundings, but they're not, you know, aware of kind of abstract concepts. And so they, they hurt themselves, they wound themselves, and uh, their mother, their father takes them to the hospital, gets stitches, you know, the person has to be you know, the, the, the wound has to be cleaned each day with alcohol, which stings, and the dressing changed, and, and it's painful, right? And the child doesn't understand why his or her parent is inflicting pain upon them. But in fact, uh, that is not because there isn't a reason, but it's because the rationality of the child at that stage isn't capable of appreciating the reason, right? And so too it is with us, right? You know, God operates on an ex existentially different level, and... Uh, and even in the Job story, eventually the answer emerges, which wasn't clear at the time, right? Um, from the introduction of the book, it's apparent that God permitted this testing as a result of Satan's provocation. For Satan has had challenged before the Lord the righteousness of Job. Does Job fear God for naught? Thou hast blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he has, 
and he will curse thee to thy face. And if the Lord consents to test Job with suffering, he does it to demonstrate the latter, that is Job's righteousness. The suffering has the nature of a test, right? Job didn't understand at the time there was a certain mysterious aspect to it, and yet, nevertheless, there was a reason, right? And so that's the second answer, you know. Um, oftentimes, we, uh, God invites us into, or permits a suffering because um, there is a certain humility engendered by the mystery, right? Um, the next stage in the development of an answer um, is, uh, is the standard one that we all think of, right? You know, God is capable of bringing good out of evil. Um, the Pope talks about even in the Old Testament, there was, we note, an orientation that begins to go beyond the concept according to which suffering has a meaning only as a punishment for sin. Thus, in the suffering inflicted by God upon the chosen people, there is included an invitation of his mercy, which corresponds, uh, corrects in order to lead to conversion. These punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people, right? They have the sense of they're in the pedagogical character, right? They're, 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 uh, they exist in order to, to discipline and to, to bring about conversion, uh, to bring about a change. Um, suffering must serve for conversion, that is, for the rebuilding of goodness, in the subject, right? We go back to the idea that evil, the experience of suffering is an experience of evil. Evil is a lack of goodness present. Um, and so the, the, the Pope says, uh, suffering must serve for conversion, the rebuilding of goodness in the subject who can recognize the divine mercy in this call to repentance. Again, right, you know, that was, that was what emerged in Wild Soul, right? Even without the education, it emerged that he said, I cannot be bitter. I have to find a way to find joy and happiness, and that will be my response to all of this. And then the Pope, in very dramatic fashion, John Paul comes to the fourth and the definitive answer, the fourth and definitive stage of the answer. And it's something that we hear so often that we, uh, we have to let the radicality of it sink in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus Christ's suffering conquer, is conquered by love. In Jesus Christ, suffering is conquered by love. Um, he spends basically the, the, the next, you know, 80% of his letter unpacking that reality. So we'll, we'll have to kind of do it very quickly. Um, he says, salvation means liberation from evil, and for this reason it is closely bound up with the problem of suffering. Um, according to the words spoken to Nicodemus, God gives his son to the world to free men from evil, which bears within itself the definitive and absolute perspective on suffering. So, you know, the suffering is Christ is going to fundamentally change the nature of suffering. Um, when one says that Christ, by his mission, strikes uh, strikes at evil at its very roots, we have in mind not only evil and definitive uh, eschatological suffering, uh, but also at least indirectly toil and suffering in their temporal and historical dimensions. Um, he connects the fact that, you know, some of the experience of suffering really is just the sort of the background of the effects of original sin. But he goes on to say, he says, at any rate, Christ drew close above all to the world of human suffering through the fact of having taken this suffering upon his very self. Again, we echo back, we think back to, you know, Wilde's amazing description of the experience of the Last Supper, of Christ's passion, of those last three days. I mean, in two, three days, Christ experienced the totality of the darkness of the human experience. He entered into it, right? He placed himself precisely there. But why? Why? Uh, Pope ben, uh, John Paul says, during his public activity, he experienced not only fatigue, homelessness, misunderstanding, even on the part of those closest to him, but more than anything, he became progressively more and more isolated and encircled by hostility and the preparations uh, for putting him to death. One of the things that has always struck me is um, the fundamental question, where does meaning come from? I thought about this a lot when I, when I lived over in, uh, in Europe because when one travels, when one encounters great works of art or uh, 
you know, places associated with historical figures, or even being in the presence of, uh, of a great historical figure, a pope or whatever, you, you start to say, why is this experience meaningful? Um, I remember one time taking a little tour of the city and uh, uh, Father Reggie Foster, the great Latinist, was, it was an Ides of March tour and we were visiting places associated with, uh, with Caesar and we visited the place of his assassination. Um, the place where Caesar was assassinated is currently uh, buried under about 15 feet of asphalt, and there's a train track uh, lying over it. And yet, nevertheless, there was something kind of profound about standing there, right? You were standing on a place associated with one of the great historical events. Um, on one level, it's very mundane, and on another level, it gains a meaning. If you ever travel, if we ever travel to um, uh, the Holy Land, right, you know, to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you stand literally at Golgotha, the place where the cross had been planted. On a geological or a petrographic level, it's just, a, it's just a bunch of stone, you know. It's just a bunch of stones stacked on top of each other, maybe some colored pieces of glass, you know, cemented together. And yet, it's a church that marks the spot in which one of the most definitive historical acts, uh, well, the most definitive act in human history occurred. There is a meaning that comes from association with a person, a place, a thing. Uh, um, and I think one of the reasons that Christ drew into the experience of human suffering is that by the very fact that he did it, he gave it meaning, right? Um, we think about tradition, right? You know, we pin the tail on the donkey at a birthday party or sing happy birthday. Why do we do it? We do it because that's the way our parents did it or the way we, uh, you know, our friends do it. When we were in the seminary, we had a great uh, saying, do it once and it becomes a tradition, you know, and, uh, and we had many, we had many. And uh, why do we do it that way? It's because the way they did it last year and the year before that. Uh, right now, if you go to Rome during this time, uh, you can do the Lenten uh, station churches, right? Why did we do it? Well, we do it because they've done it that way for 1,200 years. Um, for, for 1,200 years, people have made that journey. We step in their footsteps. We walk the places they walk. We experience the, the frigid air in the morning and the, the excitement of watching the sun rise over the ancient city just the way they did it. It gives us a connection to a people uh, that came before us. And in a certain way, Christ doing, uh, entering fully into the experience of suffering, when we do it, it's no longer a meaningless activity, but it is associated with the greatest, uh, the greatest person and the greatest event in human history. Um, the Pope goes on to say something else. He says, precisely by means of his cross, he, that's, that's Christ, must strike at the roots of evil planted in the history of man and in human souls. Precisely by means of his cross, he must accomplish the work of salvation. This work in the, in the plan of eternal love has redemptive character. Um, Bishop Robert Barron, uh, echoing some of the thoughts of the, the great French philosopher uh, René Girard, um, had a very interesting take on, uh, on the, 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 the fundamental nature of the cross. Uh, Rene Girard had a basic theory that um, violence is fundamentally, he called it, uh, he said it was based on what was called mimetic desire. So somebody else wants something, you see them wanting that same thing, you then imitate their desire, and the fact that you both want something of which there's a finite quantity uh, means that conflict ensues. The way that we get out of conflict is by displacing all of our, our mutual angst and, and hatred of each other onto a third party, onto a scapegoat. Um, and, uh, and historically, we see this, right? We see this in great wars and, and great uh, ethnic conflicts and so forth. You know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know? Um, and, uh, and so that tension kind of gets displaced. Well, Bishop Robert Barron makes the comment that when Christ enters into the drama of, of human hostility, in a sense, the cross places a wedge within the gears of retribution. Uh, he makes the very provocative statement that the only one who can end a cycle of violence, in a sense, is the victim who chooses not to retaliate. 
right? Um, uh, because otherwise it keeps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I think in some ways that's how the cross becomes planted. It become, it strikes at the roots of evil. By confronting his accusers, by confronting his killers, his persecutors, with love, by not returning the hatred, and we have to dig into that too, um, he strikes at the very root of the cycle of, of sin and the cycle of human violence, right? Um, by quietly and joyfully bearing the trials, even the undeserved trials and not retaliating, we can elicit a goodness uh, from the other person. That's the compassion that, that Wilde spoke of, right? You know, the, the poor man who has experienced lack, uh, the man who has gone to prison, um, sees within the other prisoner not a pariah but a person with potential, right? Um, and that, you know, uh, recognizing that even though they might have done something, that they're capable of moving beyond that. And that's what we see when we forgive. That's what we see when we love. That's what we see when we, we discard bitterness, as we see the potential within the other person to move beyond uh, their, their, their sin. Um, he goes on to connect suffering with love and suffering with the will of God. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Later he says, father, if it cannot pass from me unless I drink of it, thy will be done. Um, suffering strips away the fear that we cannot live without something that we consider essential. And it forces us to intimately and absolutely cling to, uh, cling to God. For the, sin of, for the sake of him who was made sin, who knew no sin um, that Christ became, uh, together with this horrible weight encompassing the entire evil of turning away from God, which is contained in sin, Christ, through the divine depth of his filial union with the Father, perceives in a humanly inexpressible way the suffering, which is the separation, the rejection by the Father, the estrangement from God. But precisely through the suffering, he accomplishes the redemption and can say as he breathes his last, it is finished. Right? The ultimate form of suffering is not pain. The ultimate form of suffering is loneliness. Uh, the ultimate, ultimate form of suffering is alienation and separation from God. And so the suffering that elicits from us a clinging to God in effect, um, brings about that fundamental union that uh, is, is the, the definitive answer, right? And finally, he connects a suffering with love. He says, the truth of love, is, um, the words of the prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, prove the truth of love through the truth of suffering. Um, in a certain way, love and suffering can never be uh, separated from each other because love is actions. Love is willing the good of the other and demonstrating that good by, in a sense, giving up some bit of ourselves. That's where the sweetness comes from, isn't it? Uh, when we so forget ourselves and we're so focused on the good of the person around us that, uh, <clears throat> that we don't count the loss. I mean, I think that's what Christ was experiencing as he hung on the cross. Father, forgive them, for he knew not what they do. He wasn't fundamentally thinking about his pain. He wasn't fundamentally thinking about what was going on with him. He was so aware of and concerned for the alienation between uh, his persecutors and the Father that that's what his energy was focused on. And that is what, uh, and that is what had allowed him to, 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 to bring love even into the, the darkest of situations. Um, with all of this that's been said, you know, we, we talk about suffering, and I think it's important to leave with just one last um, thought. Pope John Paul says, every man, every woman has his or her own share in the redemption. Each one is also called to share in that suffering through which the redemption is accomplished. He is called to share in that suffering through which all human suffering has been redeemed. In bringing about the redemption through suffering, Christ has also raised human suffering to the level of the redemption. Here's what's important for us to remember, I think. This is not primarily a promise about the future as much as it is a description of the present, right? Oftentimes when we hear of trials, when we hear of sufferings, we think, oh, Lord, my life is already so difficult. What else are you going to bring my way? What other ways are you going to try me? It's not so much a promise about the future as it is a way through the present moment. 
God loves us. He's only going to give us what will truly uh, transform us for the good. Um, the discussion of suffering, the discussions of trials, it's not meant to make us preoccupy with fear for the future. It's rather intended to say, no, I am present even in the present moment. I providentially love you. I am, uh, I am bringing about your good. I'm bringing about the conversion of your soul at this present moment. And the minute you stop fighting it is the minute that joy arrives. I think in many ways life, uh, at least the, the, the immovable aspects of life, uh, become like quicksand. The more that we struggle against them, the more they fight against them, the more we sink and the more that we are drowned in the midst of our problems. But the more that we rest, and we allow ourselves to stop fighting God's will, God's providence, the more that we humbly place our trust in our loving Father and we let go of all the bitterness and the resentment and the preoccupations, the more, uh, like quicksand, we begin to kind of float above it all. Not the absence of external conflict, but the presence of a profound inner joy and inner peace that comes from union with God with an absolute humility before His will and with a, a constant and perduring awareness of His loving providence at each and every moment of our life. And with that, I would like to suggest that these three Lenten letters from prison offer us a path through and beyond the sufferings of our lives. Thank you very much.